Peace be upon you. If you happen to catch yourself debating with an atheist, one of the lines of argumentation that they will take on is to try to create scenarios to show that God could not be most gracious or most merciful or all-powerful or most just or any other attribute of God. And by doing so, what they're attempting to do is to show that God does not exist. But what I find interesting is rather than even merely entertaining the thought that God might not possess these qualities, they jump to the conclusion that therefore God does not exist. Now, what's so significant about this? It's the fact that even the disbeliever, the atheist, realizes the attributes of God and realizes that if a God did not possess these attributes, therefore he is not God. And this shows that this is intrinsic knowledge that every human being has of knowing who God is. That even this atheist can't make that jump of accepting or entertaining even the thought of a God who does not possess these attributes. And this is confirmed in the Quran. In the Quran, God tells us that he gave us intrinsic knowledge of God. In Surah 30, verse 30, it says, Therefore, you shall devote yourself to the religion of strict monotheism. Such is the natural instinct placed into the people by God. Such creation of God will never change. This is the perfect religion, but most people do not know. Every single human being has this intrinsic knowledge of knowing God. And by knowing God, we can differentiate between good and evil because God encompasses everything that's good. So in order to be able to know God, in order to have this innate knowledge of who God is, God also placed in us the knowledge of good and evil. In Surah 91 verse 7 and 8, it reads, The soul in him who created it then placed innate knowledge of what is evil and what is good. And this word in Arabic is fa'ala hama'a, which means natural instinct, divine inspiration, innate knowledge that God placed in us to show us so we can see for ourselves and distinguish between what is good and what is evil. This is something that even a child, they've done experimentation where children only a few months old can distinguish between good and bad, that this is something in our core. And by knowing good and bad, it allows us to know who God is. Because again, God encompasses everything that's good. In Surah 7, verse 172, it reads, Recall that your Lord summoned all the descendants of Adam and had them bear witness for themselves. Am I not your Lord? So when it says, all the descendants of Adam, that's every single human being, that's you, that's me, that's every human that ever lived. And it continues, it says, They all said, yes, we bear witness. Thus you cannot say on the day of resurrection, we were not aware of this. Nor can you say it was our parents who practiced idolatry and we simply followed in their footsteps. Will you punish us because of what others have innovated? We thus explain the revelations to enable the people to redeem themselves. We all witnessed who God is. Before us coming to this world, we all saw with our own eyes and bared witness that God is our Lord. We cannot make the excuse that we didn't know because even the atheist knows the characteristics of who God is. Now, the fact that we have this innate yearning for God is proof in itself that God exists. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis. It reads, The fact that our heart yearns for something earth cannot supply is proof that heaven must be our home. And you can take it one step further. Before you even saw what food is, we felt hunger. 
before we realized what sleep is, we felt tired. The reason that we felt these things is because they exist. Why did we feel love? We were in search of love, even as a small infant, because we know love exists. Why do we seek forgiveness, atonement, when we step out of something that we know is morally not right? Is because we know forgiveness exists. And similarly, the fact that we desire God, we desire redemption, that we want to go back to God's kingdom, is proof that God exists. Now, there's a fun little story about a chick who was... Uh, being nursed by his mo uh, mother in a nest. And the chick asked the mom, where did you come from? And the mother tells her, I once was a chick just like you. And the chick asks, does that mean that I too will be a mother someday? And the mother says, I presume so. But the mother, where is your mother? Asked the chick. Once I grew big enough and she no longer needed to take care of me, she left for a place she called home. But mother, are you also going to go when I'm too big for this nest and you no longer need to take care of me? Yes, said the mother. But where will you go? inquired the chick. The mother said, I don't know how to describe it as I've never been there before. Well, do you know where it is? asked the chick. The mother said, I can't say for sure, but I felt it in my bones. I feel it. I need to fly across the vast ocean to a place I feel it is my home. But mother, how do you know this place is even true? For all you know, your feelings could be leading you astray, asked the chick. The mother replied, Oh, child, there are many things you will learn as you grow and become wise. But I ask you, when you first hatched, did you not yearn for your mother, though you never seen her before? And you not feel hungry, though you never ate food before? And when you wandered off and you got scared, did you ache for security, though you never seen a predator before? And when I finally found you, did you seek to be forgiven, though you've never seen forgiveness before? Though you once never saw any of these things, did you ever doubt that they exist? For the fact that my heart requires that I one day make this trip, I therefore know that this place also exists. God put these desires in our heart because they exist, because we know that this is what we yearn for. If it didn't exist, isn't that interesting? That everything else that we feel that we need to be complete obviously exists. Food, air, water, shelter, security, forgiveness then obviously if we all, all human beings have this innate desire to find God for religion, does this not show that there's something that exists? Why else is this almost universally in every single human being? If someone is lacking, for instance, the sense of atonement to wanting to seek forgiveness, we say there's something wrong with them. You know, they're, they're, they're a psychopath. They're arrogant. There's something missing. There's something astray because these are innate human qualities. So one of the, the questions that comes up is what is the definition of religion? The BBC recently ran like I think a six-part series uh, of articles trying to understand what is religion. And I was reading this thing and I was like, man, they are so off the mark. What they describe as religion, I would have described as culture. And the question is, so what is the definition of religion? Because a lot of people like an atheist, they claim I have no religion. But this is, this is a farce. It's not true. The religion in Arabic is the same word as it is for judgment. Deen means religion, but Yom Din is the day of judgment. And my takeaway from this is the fact that our religion is the metric by which we judge by. Because God has placed in us this intrinsic knowledge of not only what is good and what is evil, but knowing who God is and having this desire to find God. And as we grow and we age and we replace this 
concept of what is good and what is evil with our mere opinions, then we're sent astray because our religion is no longer the religion of God. We've gone a different path. And this takes us on the topic of universal morality. There's a debate, again, among atheists and believers. Is there such thing as universal morality, objective morality, something that we all know inherently is true? Or is morality purely subjective, something that's a mere opinion? Because if someone does not believe in a universal lawgiver, then there is no universal morality. And therefore, what is moral is just a mere opinion of a person. And if you follow that logic through and through and you don't believe in universal morality, then therefore anything can be justified. And there's a quote, it says, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And if you believe in God, you believe in that God has set the limits of what is good and what is evil. Therefore, you can accept universal morality. You can accept that, yes, there are things that are inherently bad under all conditions. There is no culture, no time period, no justification for certain acts. But if you believe that morality is purely suggestive, it's purely determined on the culture of the people, then you can make the argumentation that, for instance, torturing an innocent child is purely, it's okay, because it's an opinion. And this is absurd. In Surah 55, verse 7, it reads, He constructed the sky and established the law. You shall not transgress the law. You shall establish justice. Do not violate the law. If you do not believe in God, there is no way you can believe in universal morality because then you're just arguing in the sake of saying, I believe my morality is more than yours. But if we all come to a consensus that yes, there is a God who is the lawgiver who determined what is good and what is evil, then therefore we can say that there are things that are universally good and things that are universally evil. In the Declaration of Independence, we read, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you do not believe in a creator, then there's no such thing as unalienable rights because unalienable rights means that these are rights that cannot be taken away, that everyone possesses. Now, if you think that these rights come from the government, then that means that they can take it away. That means that, again, there is no universal morality. There is no universal rights for human beings. And this becomes very problematic because if you look, what have governments done throughout time? You know, there was a time when the Holocaust, exterminating poor, innocent individuals, was considered legal. And if you were hiding a Jew, it was considered a crime. Now, who in the right mind is going to say that, yes, a Holocaust is righteous and, you know, Protecting an innocent life is unrighteous. We all know in our core what is right and what is wrong. We take the example of slavery. There was a time when this was legal, where people, in essence, they would buy and sell individuals, split up families. And if you were to harbor a slave, if you treated them as a free person, you were the criminal. Or think about segregation. There was a time when it was perfectly legal to segregate. Does that mean that it was moral? Absolutely not. We have to realize there's a difference between legality and morality. The two are not the same. Our morality comes from God. Our morality has been placed in us and inherently we know what is good and what is bad. Now what makes a hypocrite is an individual who believes in God or claims they believe in God. But what they want to do is twist 
What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be a good moral person? Now, it's a given that there's going to be certain elements of this scripture that God addresses and says, look, you're going to find this uncomfortable. In Surah 11, verse 12 says, you may wish to disregard some of that which is revealed to you, and you may be annoyed by it. God is telling us, look, this scripture, it's heavy. It comes with responsibility. But the last thing we want to do as believers is change the definition of what is righteous. Because the second we do that, we fall in the camp of the hypocrite. In Surah 2 verse 8, it says, Then there are those who say we believe in God in the last day while they are not believers. In trying to deceive God and those who believe, they only deceive themselves without perceiving. In their minds there is a disease. Consequently, God augments their disease. They have incurred a painful retribution for their lying. When they are told, do not commit evil, they say, but we are righteous. Now, in the Arabic, this uh, expression when it says we are righteous is muslihun. And what this means is to say that I'm a peacemaker, I'm a reformer. And the way I understand this is that a hypocrite, rather than trying to reform themselves to meet the definition that God has set of what is good and what is evil, what they want to do is twist the definition of what is good and what is evil, such that something that's immoral, something that we know inherently is bad for us, that they try to change to say, no, this is good for us. And the second they do this is that they've lost their moral compass. They can no longer differentiate between good and evil. And who's more astray than someone who cannot distinguish between good and evil? Someone who mistakes evil behavior is good and good behavior is evil. And this is the, the pitfall that the, the hypocrite falls into. And that's the reason that it says, in trying to deceive God, they only deceive themselves without perceiving. It continues in 2, 12 and 13, it reads, In fact, they are evildoers, but they do not perceive. When they are told, believe like the people who believe, they say, shall we believe like the fools who believe? In fact, it is they who are fools, but they do not know. They are completely unaware. Once they make this decision to change the definition of what they knew as a child, as far as what is good and what is evil, when their ego kicked in, and made them follow their own opinion, where it eliminated this concept of universal morality, where they think that morality is subjective, what they end up doing is they commit the most horrendous crime. In Surah 40 verse 35 says, they argue against God's revelations without any basis. This is the trait that is most abhorred by God and by those who believe. God thus seals the hearts of every arrogant tyrant. If we ever find ourselves arguing on something that we know deep down is immoral, we should reestablish our understanding. In Surah 40 verse 56, it says, Surely those who argue against God's revelations without proof are exposing the arrogance that is hidden inside their chest, and they are not even aware of it. Therefore seek refuge in God. He is the hear, the seer. So how do we go about doing this? How do we make sure that God willing, the decisions we make are moral, that they're uh, pleasing to God? And God gives us the answer. In Surah 17, verse 36, it says, You shall not accept any information unless you verify it for yourself. I have given you the hearing, the eyesight, and the brain, and you're responsible for using them. So God is telling us, look, we have to use these senses, our knowledge, to come to the consensus, is this good or is this evil? Because if we're strictly going with our feelings, the challenge is we can easily be led astray. We have to think about these things critically. Now, I think this is an interesting comparison is the how do you know when to go with your brain and when to go with your heart? The word that's used in 1736 is uh, wa'al fuhud, which 
is different in the sense of when it uses the term qalb. Qalb means like heart, mind, but wahal fahud comes from the root fahad, which is more than just the mere brain. And I was thinking about this. And in the last decade, a lot of knowledge came out in regards to the enteric nervous system, which they call the second brain. They used to think that all our neurons were limited to kind of our brain. And they obviously, they saw that it was in the spinal cord and stuff. But then there's the second brain that is predominantly revolves around the gut, which in itself has about 100 million neurons. And this is more than the spinal cord, more than the peripheral nervous system. And this is all encompassed in the stomach. Now, what's interesting is that people, they say, you know, I have this gut instinct that something, you know, uh, is awry. And the question is, okay, when do we follow that? And when do we follow our brain? For proportion in our brain, we have about 100 billion neurons. So if we only have 100 million, even though that sounds like a lot, that's still 0.01% of our total brain capacity is coming from our gut. And to me, this means that I need to put more weight in the what's going on in my brain than what's going on in my gut. But my gut is the safety metric for me to be able to distinguish between good and evil. When something doesn't sit right, it's for me to go and reassess what's going on. One of the examples I heard recently is the fact that why is it that you don't see much liberal talk radio? It's almost like the genre does not exist. The only time you really see anything even similar is one that when it's publicly funded. Uh, but in the sense of having an audience of a liberal talk radio who's self-independent, it's very non-existent on radio. Uh, you'll see it on YouTube and stuff like that. And the question is why? Is because a lot of the liberal argument has to do with the heart, has to do with feelings. And the way that you're going to tap into someone's feelings is through the eyes. Because when you see something, it's hard to think critically because the images have such a strong resonance on our understanding. But when you hear something, you're able to be a little more critical about the understanding because you're less swayed by the visual implications. Now, as a submitter, we use not only our eyes, we use our hearing and our feelings and our mind to distinguish what is good and what is bad. And the aspect is we have to be very critical not to fool ourselves because a lot of times what ends up happening is we are so clever at coming up with reasoning and logic that we miss the bigger picture. There's a famous quote from Richard Feynman. It says, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. You know, we never want to fall in the camp of potentially being a hypocrite where we can't distinguish between right and wrong when it gets all jumbled up. And it's important in the sense that we think about these things critically, that we don't victimize under, uh, other people, that we deal with people equitably and fairly and justly. Now, this has to do with the second element. And it has to do with what's known as second level thinking. If you think about things only on the first level, it's very easy in essence to be deceived. And this is the way the devil works. He wants to give you an impression, make you think very short term and forget the fact that these decisions have second level ramifications. One of the examples of this that I think is very interesting is the element of criminal justice system. Because in the Quran, it shows that the criminal justice system we have established today in much of the world is an inhumane practice. And the question is, is the criminal justice system for the sake of punishment or is it for the sake of rehabilitation? Because if it's for the sake of punishment, all we're doing is we're leaving people worse off. Now, these individuals, they have to be 
brought back into society? And are we giving them the proper uh, essentials in order to be good functional human beings when they're brought back into society? And if the answer is no, then we have to reassess this. Or think about this. When someone steals something from you, say $1,000, does it make sense to send that person to prison? You know, what if they were the bread earner for their family? Does that make sense to victimize the family who is now losing their bread earner, the, the child who no longer has a father, you know, the wife who no longer has a husband? Is that fair for them? It's because we have to think about these aspects and our ramifications of the decisions we make. And as submitters, we want to be able to make sure that the decisions we make are as moral and as upright as they can be. Because this is what distinguishes someone who's godly from someone who's not. A godly person is going to want to make moral decisions, is going to be thinking critically about the decisions they make, and is going to be able to distinguish between right and wrong. You know, never should our belief override our morality. Because the second it does that, it's a big red flag that something's awry. Now, one of the topics that comes up is this concept of does the ends justify the means? As submitters, are we allowed to conduct immoral acts because the end outcome will be more favorable towards God? And the answer from my understanding is absolutely not. We can never justify any immorality because we think that that's going to lead us to righteousness. This is a trick that the devil pulls, that, hey, if you commit sin, if you do a transgression, then you can turn to being righteous. And in 728, God tells us that he never advocates sin. It reads, they commit a gross sin, then say, we found our parents doing this, and God has commanded us to do it. Say, God never advocates sin. Are you saying about God what you do not know? It is our duty that when we conduct ourselves, that we conduct ourselves morally, we leave the outcome to God. The decisions we make have to be in line with what we consider to be moral and righteous. God gives us the example in 532. It says, Because of this we decreed for the children of Israel that anyone who murders any person who had not committed murder or horrendous crime, it shall be as if he murdered all the people. And anyone who spares a life, it shall be as if he spared the lives of all the people. Our messengers went to them with clear proofs and revelations, but most of them, after all this, are still transgressing. This answers the question. Some people, they think that, in essence, killing an innocent life to save other people is justified. That the utility uh, is makes it so that you're allowed to kill a small subset of people in order to save a larger group of people. And in the decision of the individual, this is never justified. We are never allowed to commit any sin, any transgression, any victimization of someone for the greater good. This is something that the devil tries to instill into people to steer them away from God. God gives us the example that when we were bearing uh, witness to never bear false witness. In 4.135 it reads, O you who believe you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses even against yourselves or your parents or your relatives. Whether the accused is rich or poor, God takes care of both. Therefore, do not be biased by your personal wishes. If you deviate or disregard this commandment, then God is fully cognizant of everything you do. Some people think that this is there's justification to act unequitably towards people, to bear false witness against individuals in order to be able to benefit the ones that they 
hold more uh, dear. And God is telling us that it's a sin to do such things. We have to treat every human being equitably. We have to act morally. If we think that we can change the outcome, then we think that we are in control. It says God takes care of both. God is the one who dictates the outcome. Us as human beings, we have to let go of that responsibility, put it in the hands of God, and make sure that the decisions we make, we are responsible for and that they're moral and righteous to the best of our ability. God controls the outcome. We are not responsible for the outcome. We are only responsible for making the right decisions that please God. If we ever come across a decision and we're unsure about the moral implications, what would a moral righteous individual do? God gives us the advice that we need to consult with others. For instance, if you read something in the Quran that you interpret immorally, that gives you the indication that you're supposed to do something that goes against your gut instinct. You're best off consulting with other individuals, consult with moral individuals, and ask them if your interpretation is correct. Because this is a system that God has put. The devil is always going to try to get us to act immorally, to act unrighteously. And we have to be very astute, very on top of it, to make sure that the decisions we make are ones that please God, that we're never in a position where we're arguing against morality. In Surah 42, verse 37, 38, it reads, They avoid gross sins and vice, and when angered, they forgive. They respond to their Lord by observing the contact per salat. And it says, Their affairs are decided after due consultation among themselves, and from our provisions to them, they give to charity. This is our responsibility, that the decisions we make are in line with what we expect from God to be pleasing to Him. If we are acting in ways that are immoral, ways that harm individuals, that victimize innocent individuals, then it's only our souls that we're hurting. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.